navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Hey everybody, so happy to be here today for part three of how to litigate a catastrophic automobile accident injury case. Uh, you may see I have my little assistant with me today. This is Kitty. Kitty's pretty cool and uh, likes to hang out with me. So I uh, hope you don't mind. And uh, experts, working with experts is one of my favorite topics and it's one of my favorite parts of personal injury litigation. Because it, you know, as lawyers, we're always learning uh, and having an expert is having your own private tutor uh, to help you learn uh, to be able to handle your case uh, with more skill and also to increase the uh, liability prospects of your case as well as the damages of your case. And if you're handling a catastrophic injury case, these are big ticket cases, right? These are cases where someone's been killed or paralyzed or lost a limb or had a severe injury to their spine that's impacted their ability to live, to work. So when you have a case like this, there's a potential for a big recovery for your client. Uh, but just because there's a big injury doesn't mean that uh, if you're a plaintiff that the defense is going to roll over and pay you and that's assuming that there's adequate insurance coverage uh, to compensate your client for the injuries. So you have to build your case uh, and you have to use experts to build your case if you want to maximize the recovery that you can get for your client, which is what we're hired to do. So you want to work with experts to maximize liability and damages whether you're on the plaintiff side or on the defense side it is so important that you select the appropriate experts and there's all types of experts that you can work with in a case uh, and specifically in an automobile accident injury case uh, there are certain types that i want to address today um, first of all you're going to have your liability experts and then secondly you're going to have your damages experts so the first thing we're going to talk about is liability experts. And before we get into that, I just want to talk about the process for selecting experts. People ask me, uh, who do you use? What type of expert? Should I use an expert? Which expert? So first of all, uh, as far as finding an expert, there are plenty of services and sponsors for the New York State Trial Academy. You're going to hear from one of them after my presentation. Uh, that offer all of the services I'm going to be talking about today. So if you're looking for an expert, you can find them at the Academy. You can reach out to Michelle. She can put you in touch with them as well. And if you're not a member of the Academy already, I encourage you to join. Uh, there's so many great benefits you get, uh, much more so than just the uh, CLEs that you may be attending. So please consider joining. You can already get a discount for having attended this program or prior programs. But when you're trying to decide on which expert to get, you want someone who is well credentialed in the field, okay? They have the right degrees, they have the right certifications, uh, they have the respect within their industry. You need a well credentialed expert. You need an expert who you foresee taking the stand at the time of trial on behalf of your case, who's going to be sized up by the jury in the case and the judge potentially. 
And you want to make sure that that expert has the proper credentials to back up what that expert is going to offer as far as opinions in your case. And credibility is really important. So don't just hire an expert because it's an expert that's done a thousand of these cases before, or it's an expert who is tried and true for the defense or for the plaintiff. Um, one of the things I hate is when I see uh, when it's time to have my clients evaluated by a physician on behalf of the defense, and you see the same, same people over and over again, Dr. Head, Dr. Bonomo, nod your head if you've encountered them. These are doctors that I still don't understand if they're still around and practicing, but if not them, you know the types of experts I'm talking about that just show up time and time and again. And their credibility is shot because they've done evaluations only for the defense for, you know, they do hundreds a year and they've been doing it for decades and they never find anything wrong and never uh, concede anything. Uh, you know, if you're a defense lawyer or you're with an insurance company, I implore you not to hire these experts. Hire somebody credible. It's okay to concede that someone's been injured and is suffering. That is okay, but you can also address um, where you disagree with some of the plaintiff's experts. Uh, when you lose that credibility, I'm happier to see uh, one of these defense experts show up on my case than no expert at all, because it helps me. It helps me to make them look horrible at trial, to cut away at their credibility, to show they that instead of the defense bringing in someone credible for the jury, look who they hire, look who they bring to to testify uh, before you. And it ends up hurting the defense more than helping. Um, so really when you get an expert, try and find someone that's done work on both the plaintiff and the defense side. Try and find an expert who's gonna be unbiased. Obviously you're gonna want the expert to work with you, whichever side of the case you're on, and to give you any benefit of the doubt that they feel comfortable giving, but you, you need someone that's gonna call it like it is. I come across way too many experts that are just so strongly bent uh, and biased that it, it ends up hurting the defense. It just does. I, I just spent a couple hours this morning preparing with uh, my biomechanical engineer expert on a um, catastrophic ski accident case uh, where my client was paralyzed. And I'm questioning the defense biomechanical expert in the case on Friday. And uh, their experts, uh, I, Already, I've questioned him on two other cases. He shows up in a lot of these cases, and um, it's not going to help their cause as much as they think he's such a great expert that it will. So I just caution you with that. Select your experts with care. All right. Now, defend, depending on the facts of the auto accident that you're handling, where your client has been catastrophically injured, that's going to depend on what type of expert you should consider having. If it's a rear end case where uh, your client uh, is driving a car and gets crushed from behind by a tractor trailer, you're not going to need uh, an accident reconstruction expert because liability in that case uh, may not be the issue as to which driver is at fault. But if there's an issue that the vehicle your client was in that was ran into from behind that the airbags didn't deploy or it caused the car to roll over when it shouldn't have where the glass broke in when it should have been shatter-proof type glass, or the accelerator or brake or steering didn't work, 
then you'll likely need an automotive engineer to come in and examine the car. So you're going to want to find out the facts of the case and then decide which expert to bring in. If there's a dispute between uh, drivers of different vehicles as to who is at fault, that's where an accident reconstructionist can really come into play. And I highly recommend using one. Uh, many of you attended my one of my programs last year where I talked at length about my Amador trial in Queens where my client's on a motorcycle, the defendant was operating a car, they both testified that they were both approaching the turn and the other one was at fault and they collided. And by the time we got involved in the case, you know, there hadn't been really much of a investigation at the time. So while preparing for trial, once a note of issue was filed, I said, you know what, let's see if we can do better than just he said, she said, maybe a proper auto reconstruction accident expert can use the data that we have, the photographs, go to the scene, the testimony, and, and see if our client's version is more credible than the defendant's version or vice versa. If our expert says, listen, everything I'm looking at shows your guy was at fault, I want to know that. And then I just wouldn't use them, right? But if the expert shows a valid way to determine fault on the defendant, then it's helpful. And in fact, in that case, a case that I probably would have settled at 50% of full value, 50-50, they're each pointing fingers, um, we ended up getting 100% liability finding on the defendant at trial because we had an accident reconstruction expert. So it was worth the investment, worth the time and money and energy to get that expert involved because it doubled the value of the case, in my opinion. So auto accident reconstruction experts are very helpful in big, big cases. Now, let's say there's drunk driving involved. I mentioned earlier on in this series, I believe in part one, one of the cases was the Matt Ferber case where my, clients, uh, was, my client was in the back of a car and the uh, driver of the car was intoxicated, ran into a guide rail going really fast speeding. The guide rail broke, pierced through the car and uh, took off my client's legs. And in that case, we wanted a toxicologist uh, to talk about how the intoxication affected um, the abilities of the driver to cause the accident. And so if you have a dram shop case where there may be an issue about driving while intoxicated, you may have a lot of data, you may have a little bit, there may be issues. You would want to consider a toxicologist in that case. In the Matt Ferber case, when the guide rail broke, we wanted to explore whether or not there was something wrong with the guide rail. So we hired a metallurgist. Metallurgy is the study of metals and when they fracture, when they don't, and they do all kinds of things. So we retained a metallurgical expert. There's experts in all kinds of fields. So once you narrow down the circumstances of your specific case that you're working on, and we're talking about auto cases, that's when you can find the proper expert. Then when you have an auto accident reconstruction expert, a metallurgist, a toxicologist, whatever expert you're gonna use, maybe it's a, we have a case now that I'm gonna show you an exhibit from, where uh, it's a death case and uh, our client's decedent uh, was making a left turn in the Jeep and a big dump truck was coming down the road and the dump truck uh, tried to swerve to get out of the way but swerved into the other side of traffic and collided into our client's decedent's car, knocked it over and he ended up dying. So our auto accident reconstructionist was able to reconstruct the accident 
and then put together animation based on that and videos. And, and these are things that are really important to use uh, to demonstrate to a jury and to your adversary um, how you're going to prove your case and how strong it's going to be. And I want to share that with you. I, I have materials uh, that I've submitted for today. And uh, most of you know, I don't like to spend too much time with doing screen shares, but I'm going to share a little bit today. Uh, but you can look at your leisure in the materials. I've shared different exhibits, animation, screenshots. Uh, I've shared uh, life care plans and doctor evaluations and um, vocational evaluations and economic reports. These are all to give you an idea of what these reports look like and how they can help your case and how to build it. So right now I'm gonna share my screen with you. Uh, this is the case where uh, you'll see on your screen, hopefully, uh, and this is on page 12 of the materials. And when I give you a page number, I'm referring to the PDF number. So it's PDF number 12. And here's the case, and our accident reconstructionist was able, based on the investigation done at the scene, use the police investigation measurements, skid marks, uh, downloaded data from the vehicles, and they were able to actually reconstruct the accident. And what you're seeing here is a screenshot where it shows you can actually run it and you can see the Jeep pull out, you can see the truck come down, you can pause it, you can move it. You can see on this image uh, some lines which show where measurements were taken from. And this is actually a video animation that uh, this is a screenshot from. And it shows that the point of impact in this case was actually in the opposite lane of traffic that the red truck was driving in. And our expert was able to reconstruct it and show that had that um, dump truck just put on the brakes, applied them and stayed in the lane of travel, that this Jeep would have been able to successfully make the turn. And you could see that the vehicle was actually, our client decedent's truck was actually already made the turn and was safe and would have continued to travel on and this truck would have just gone straight on its way but the person got nervous pulled the wheel to the left crashed into um, the jeep and ended up um, unfortunately killing uh, the driver so this type of demonstrative evidence especially when it's photos animations really really helps a jury to understand when it's backed up by science and with a proper expert I want to share with you now also this starts on page um, 14. This was the Matt Ferber case, and this is the one that I told you about involving a guide rail. So we had a lot of things that we needed to prove in this case, very difficult case, and we wanted to show that there was notice uh, to the state that the guide rail had a fracture in it, uh, which is not easy to prove and that the uh, it wouldn't be able to withstand if a car hit it at a certain speed it was going to break apart it shouldn't have broken apart and we wanted to show exactly how this accident happened so what we did is working with our um, exhibit specialists our accident reconstructionists our metallurgists and all the data in the case uh, uh, prior accidents in our accident we created this powerpoint uh, slide to show to the defense to the state to support our case and also to the court of claims judge just going to scroll through it to give you an idea of how you can actually take an accident and really create by working with the right case uh, experts really create something so we use the map to show where the accident occurred we overlaid it with screenshots uh, of the actual 
GPS data and Google Earth showing where everything was. And then these are the actual um, diagrams that the state police created showing how the car went off and rotated and crashed and where it ended up. Um, then we started putting in where the box beam was. Uh, and then we started showing how the vehicle approached it with each slide. So as you go through, you could start to see how the car approached it and where it hit and what point it hit. And then we got a little better with zooming in and we got a car model to be the exact make and model of the car involved in the case. We used photographs of the actual box beam involved in the markings on it. And then you see as the vehicle comes in, it slides across the side of it. And as it approached the box beam, it broke apart. And then what happens, it opened up like a door. And as the car continues to go, the jagged edge impaled into the car. And then we compared it with actual photographs taken from the scene of the accident, which you can see here. And as you start to see, it really gives you a, a, an idea of what happened in, in this tragic, I mean, look what happened to this car. Uh, very high speed, horrible, horrible case. So what we're using is the markers, the photographs uh, to show where different things happened in the case, where the box beam railing broke apart. And then while the specifications, and then these are all the exhibits to, that our metallurgists would use to show how they're designed. And these are prior accidents. What we wanted to show is it hit at the exact same point and that the state was aware this was a prior accident. They should have gone out to inspect the guide rail that they were aware of was damaged. And we dug up photographs uh, from the prior accidents. You got to do your homework and your research and dig up everything you can. So the idea is just to show you that working with the proper experts, doing the animation, showing this prior accident, showing that it hit in the exact same spot as ours, as our case, and it caused this crack and how you could see it and how there was damage there. So again, working with the right experts ultimately gets you to the point where you can present something like this and it becomes very um, forceful uh, and uh, very helpful to support your case. And guaranteed your adversary sees that this is something that you're gonna be showing to a jury and that you have an expert here. Our metallurgist was uh, from MIT, uh, professor of metallurgy there. And when you have that level of credentials, uh, it's just gonna help um, your case. And that's what you wanna do in big cases like this. Okay, so this is just to show you an idea. Obviously, it's a very big, we did an evaluation of the actual box beam, and we use that to create the imagery. So you're going to want to do all kinds of stuff like this in a big case, because you're spending a lot of money, but you have to spend money to make the money for your client. Because when a jury sees this, that's when it, what's going to convince them uh, to find your way when it comes to liability. All right. So as far as liability experts, there's many who you can use, uh, many types, many places to find them. And again, if you find someone with the right credentials, they can help you build your case. They can help you um, know what to demand when you do your demand for discovery and inspection, what documents you want, what photos you want. They will tell you where to look and how to build the case. 
and you'll work with them from the beginning all the way through the case. I know someone's going to ask me, when should you hire? When, when's the right time to hire these experts? And my recommendation is get your experts as early in the case as you can, especially if it's a big case. Get them on board. They're going to help you the whole way through from preparing your clients for the depositions, for telling you what to get, for preparing for questioning uh, the defendant's witnesses in the case. Okay. Any means I know what I know, but there's a lot I don't that others may know. So please put that in there. We'll be doing the Q&A uh, from two o'clock to 2.30. And I know there's a lot of questions. There's always tons to talk about with experts, but I'm going to move on to damages experts and how to use those in a catastrophic automobile accident case to really help your case. And I'm going to give you an example of a case I'm currently handling. And by the way, um, I've redacted uh, as best as I could, uh, my client's name from all these records I've included. Uh, so, you know, if I happen to have missed a name or something, obviously this information is for uh, educational purposes only. Please do not use or share the exhibits I've given you in the materials with anyone. But I have a case right now where, and you'll see the dates are from, you know, within the last month on these documents, and we'll look at them together in a moment. But here's the scenario, and this is a this case, and what I'm going to go over is a perfect example of why experts are needed to build your case for your client. Here's the scenario: my client uh, was rear-ended at a traffic light by a car, and as a result of being hit from behind, she ended up having a, a very bad cervical injury and required fusion of her neck uh, and her cervical spine. And as a result of the fusion of her neck, where they fuse the vertebrae and her cervical spine together, she can't look all the way down. She's really restricted, really having a rough go with it. She's fallen a couple of times. She's broken her hand as a result, broken her foot as a result. She's just really miserable uh, as a result of this accident. And the case where it's pending, uh, the defense argument is, well, I don't think a jury is going to give her that much for her pain and suffering. And they're going back and forth with numbers that I think are frankly quite low. And the problem to the extent there is one with this case is that it hasn't affected her ability to earn an income. So we don't have those damages. We don't have a, a loss of earnings element. The medical bills have been paid for. So they were basically going back and forth with me on what I think the jury would award pain and suffering, and we just disagreed. And I kept saying, you're way off, you're way low, and the judge who's conferenced the case uh, is not too friendly to my side of the case and is in agreement with the defense. Oh, jurors in this area, they're not going to be given that kind of money. You're lucky if you get, on top of past medical expenses, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars for pain and suffering. Obviously, I wasn't satisfied with that answer, and I believe that uh, they're just undervaluing the case, and I wanted to, to move the dial. So here's what I did, and here's what I'm going to show you, what I recommend you do, because this is how you build a case. I said, look, she's been treated by one person for the neck, one person for the nose. She's had all these treating doctors, and they frankly haven't been the most responsive to our request for narratives and other things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have her evaluated by a credentialed um, spine expert, and I'm going to have the expert look at all of these records, opine that everything's causally related, if it is, uh, summarize the records, evaluate my client, and identify future care needs for my client. 
whether or not she's going to need another surgery, whether or not she's going to need epidural injections, whether she's going to have to follow up or take medication, whatever it may be. So the first step is to find a top expert, which I did, and I found an expert who deals with rehabilitation, spine treatment and care, and I had him evaluate her and generate a report. And uh, what you're always going to want to do, it's like an IME, an independent medical exam, but you're doing it on the plaintiff side uh, to help build the damages of your case, to have something to show that's going to, uh, you know, be comprehensive and cover all the injuries, causally connect them. And what that will do is that will lay the foundation for your arguments on causation to the, your adversary. It will lay the foundation for a future needs life care plan if the doctor can identify future care needs. And it also gives you your expert to testify at trial. You don't have to worry. Am I going to be able to get this surgeon? Am I going to get that doctor? Am I going to have to call four different doctors? You know that you have someone who's going to work with you uh, and be available as an expert in your case. And so you have the expert evaluate your client and identify the records reviewed, the history, causal connection, prognosis, all of that. And I put an example of that report in the materials, and that starts on page 86. I don't need to spend time and go through that with you. We've all looked at doctor's reports, and it's a comprehensive report that summarizes all of that. Then what I did, once I got that report, is then I sent it over to an expert in life care planning. And I asked that expert to look at all of these future care needs my client is going to need and build a life care plan around that. And for those of you who have never worked with a life care plan, uh, and you can stay on after um, my uh, presentation and Q&A and learn a lot more directly from a life care planner, but uh, it actually spells out all the future needs and puts a price, a present value price to what all of that is, okay? And if you haven't seen a life care plan, I've given you the life care plan in the materials, uh, and they're all for the same case. So first starting at page 86 is the doctor's report. And then if you go to page 94, and I'm gonna pull this up for you now, to, just to share briefly, this is what a, a life care plan, and different life care planners do it differently. So um, they're not all gonna look the same, but in general, this is what you can expect to see in a life care plan, all right? <clears throat> You're gonna see a summary, there'll be tables perhaps, uh, but ultimately, the life care plan will get to a point where there's background information, interview information, medical records reviewed. Okay, so they review all of this. And it's nice for you as a lawyer because then you have a nice summary of medical records that you don't always have or, or may not create on your own. Okay, and then it reviews the, the prior procedures our client has had, talks about limitations gives all kinds of great, great stuff in here, medications, who the doctors are. And ultimately, you're gonna to get to a point in the life care plan where it's gonna look like this. And there's gonna be projected costs for a physician evaluation, for diagnostic care, surgical interventions, home services. And a proper life care plan will have costs associated with this. In this particular life care plan, they give sort of a high and low range of what those costs are, okay? Some life care plans may just give one range and give you the basis for it, all right? And then ultimately, as you see down here, this life care plan came up with a value that my client's future care needs, 
have a current value of between 1.1 million and 1.5 million. Now we have what are called, what I like to call hard numbers. You always want hard numbers if you can get them to give to your adversary and to show to a jury. Because pain and suffering values, it's like grabbing a number out of the air. And some jurors may say, well, I think that case is worth a million dollars. Another juror may say, I think that's worth 250,000. As a lawyer, I'm always recommending a number, but there's just no number for them to grab on. Many jurors are surprised they're not given a, a table of what value goes with what injury. So I always like to start off at the end of trial in my summation talking about the hard numbers and saying that's the easy part. These are the numbers that have been shown to you or are backed up scientifically. You've heard from our expert doctor. You've heard from our expert life care planner. This is what my client's going to need. 1.1 million to 1.5 million just for future medical care. Okay. And now I'm going to take this. And then what do I do? I take the life care plan. And then I give that to my next expert, who's going to be my economist. And you can see that on uh, page 119. Let's see here. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment and get to that. And page 119 in my materials, what they do is they take this life care plan, and then the economist can then, let's see if I have it here, then the economist projects the future costs because inflation uh, and over the years as time goes on depending on the age of your client what may cost a thousand dollars now for some type of treatment they're going to add the right growth index maybe it's two percent and show that by the time this treatment's needed it's going to be you know twelve hundred dollars okay so this life care plan that was 1.1 to 1.5 is now projected to be $1.7 million based on our client's age and life care expectancy, okay? Life expectancy. So the economist will take all of these costs, and I believe the economist averaged the two values of the life care plan and took the average and when it was gonna be needed, when the inflation rate should apply, what inflation rate, and then when you go through the tables, the grand total is $1.763 million, all right? So what I've just effectively done in this case is I've gone from a case where all I'm arguing prior to having these experts to uh, my adversary to try and get the case settled, telling them, listen, you're way too low if you're going to offer $300,000, dollars $500,000 for this case. I mean, look, this is now I can show them forget about just the pain and suffering, this is what a jury is gonna see. They're gonna hear from our expert, our medical expert, who I've now disclosed with his report. They're gonna hear from our life care planner, who I've disclosed with that report, and they're gonna hear from our economists. These three experts are gonna take the stand, and at the end of the day, these numbers are gonna be put up on a board or printed out or on a screen, and I'm gonna be writing these numbers out on a board for the jury in my summation, $1.7 million. That's just the future care needs. So what, is, what happens now as a result of that? What happens is the defense now receives all of these documents and they have a couple of choices to make at this point. They can say, all right, you know, wow, the plaintiff's lawyer spent the money. Looks like they've got the right experts. Uh, this is what we're gonna be facing at trial. Maybe we should increase our offer now. Or they're gonna have to hire their own experts 
they're going to have to do a medical evaluation. They're going to have to get a life care planner. They're going to have to get an economist. They're going to have to do something to rebut all of this credibly. They can't just say, ah, we don't buy it. We don't think a jury is going to buy it. Say, okay, well, we'll see what happens when it comes time to go to go to court. Let's see who you produce. And then let them produce their experts. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. And when they do, I just in a case had a, a vocational expert. That was a rebuttal to our case. We had a case where um, our vocational expert, and we're going to talk about what that is now, but a vocational expert evaluates pre-accident earning capacity and post-accident earning capacity. If your client is working as a construction worker and gets in this horrible auto accident and uh, is now so disabled that they're stuck to a sedentary job, making $15 an hour, where before they were making $100 an hour, an hour a vocational expert evaluates all of that and then is able to show the difference in earning potential and the loss of income that the client is expected to suffer for the rest of their work life expectancy. All right, so I had a case where their lawyers questioned our expert and they argued to me, ah, it's all inflated numbers. They can do this, they can do that. But guess what? They got their own vocational expert and I just questioned that person, that witness, and she didn't even dispute what our vocational expert said. And I took her down, I cut her down left and right where they have no way to dispute with our vocational expert because they didn't get a well-credentialed expert. They didn't get someone that took the time to, without bias, to objectively analyze and assess the case. So that was a bad move on their part. Um, but you're basically, you're forcing the issue. I've included a vocational report so you can see what one of those looks like in the materials as well. I've also included for you to look at when you take a vocational uh, report and a life care plan and you put them together and give them to the economist, how that helps out your case. And I'll show those to you uh, in a moment. But this is how you're gonna build a damages case. I strongly recommend in any catastrophic injury case that you're handling, even if it's not just an automobile one, even though that's what the series is about, you need to build your damages. You need to ask these questions. One uh, is work ability impaired or could it possibly be impaired? Get a vocational expert involved and, and run it by him or her. And if it looks like there is an impairment, run the numbers. Two, always look at future medical care needs, always. Because in a serious injury, there's always gonna be the potential need for future care. And get a life care plan done, and then finally get an economist to pull it all together. These are hard numbers, they're gonna help your case, I really think you're doing a disservice and perhaps malpractice if you don't build up a big damages case this way. It's, it's really a must, must do in any big case. And it's the way you back up your demand. Uh, don't give a demand and usually until you have these numbers because then you can say, all right, I have a life care plan that shows 1.7 million. I believe the pain and suffering alone is another million dollars. That's 2.7. There's past medical bills of 300,000. And then you can make your demand of $3 million. And then when they come back and say, oh, you've got this outrageous demand, you're backing it up. And then what I like to do when, they, when my adversaries at mediations or in settlement discussions uh, say to me, 
yeah, I just don't see the numbers that way. We don't think your case is in the range you're talking about. And I say, well, what's that based on? I haven't seen your experts. You know, you, you show me, convince me. Uh, I've, sh I've shown you what I have. You show me what you're basing it upon. I'm, I'm not just going to say, take your word that you, just because you think it. So it's a nice way of finding more of an objective criteria to evaluate the values of a case. And that's why it's important to do it. Let's take a quick look at the um, at what a vocational report looks like for those of you who haven't um, worked with one of those before. And the vocational reports can be found on uh, page 125 of the materials. Okay, so this is a vocational evaluation. And the one that was done in this case, our client was a, uh, a salesperson for, uh, for cooling systems, like heating and cooling. He had to climb into attics. Uh, he had to, you know, he made his commissions on his sales. He had to be out and about in the field a lot. That's when he was involved in a really bad auto accident that disabled him from being able to do this type of work. So we wanted to find out how that impacted his ability to earn in the future. So similar to a life care plan, a good uh, vocational expert is going to do an interview, going to review medical records, um, and then use data uh, to show what all different types of jobs require. Uh, there's all different scales from sedentary to light lifting to medium or heavy lifting, and they'll categorize the injured party as being able to fall within to those categories. And in the event uh, your client is paralyzed, that's going to be a sedentary job. So then there's a list of all available sedentary jobs. There's actually a database that these experts use and they would go through that, okay? They go through their background, see what they would qualify for. Do they have a college degree? Will they be able to get higher paying jobs? Or like a construction worker, many don't have college degrees and they're laborers. And it makes it even that much more difficult for them to find uh, a way to really earn any, any serious money uh, without a college degree afterwards. So this is what these vocational reports, they'll show the employment experience, what they were making, they'll look at tax returns, um, they'll get a pre-impairment or pre-injury profile. They were good, they were making 100 grand a year, no problem consistently doing that type of work. But now, they're limited to sedentary work, which at best they'll earn $30,000 a year. So they're gonna suffer you know, $70,000 loss of income a year, and they've got another 20 year work-life expectancy. So you know, 70 times 20 is, uh, you know, you're at $1.4 million there, uh, and that's flat rate, that's present value before you get everything to an economist. So I'm just scrolling through here to give you an idea of what a vocational report looks like, okay? Talking about what someone can do. Can they bend? Can they climb? Can they carry stuff? Are they on medications that are gonna be a problem? Are they on narcotics that they have to take due to the severity of their injury? And they're not gonna get a job taking oxycodone every day, okay? What they're interested in doing, all right? So it's pretty cool stuff of how they evaluate. And then ultimately, they come up with what types of jobs they qualify for, what kind of money they pay, and then they get down to their conclusions, okay? 
about earning potential. Let's see, we have it down here. All right, so we see this person was making 89,000 one year, 125, dropped down after the accident to 48,000. Talks about now earning minimum wage, making $30,000 a year with the upside of 54,000 if they can get a job. Okay, and then again, you get all of this information and then you send it over to The Economist. And then this is an economic report that shows two different things. It shows a life care plan, which is table two. And here, this person's life care plan of future needs was 1.48 million. The earnings loss was 1 million and change. So the total economic loss is 2.5 million. Again, hard numbers. You exchange all of this to your adversary, you say, hey, you don't want to offer seven figures on this case, then you know we'll let a jury decide. Because clearly this is before you even get to the pain and suffering. You're at 2.5 million, all right? So this is how you build up hard numbers and build up a damages case. And it's important that you do this. Um, it's just gonna help you get your cases resolved. And it shows your adversary you're serious. You know, I speak with a lot of lawyers who um, may not have the budget to invest because it does cost a good amount of money, uh, especially if more than one of these cases and you're doing it on all of them, you're laying out these are disbursements, they're recoverable at the end of the case, you get them back, but you have to be able to lay out the money and you can't just kind of wait to the end uh, at the last minute, you need to do this stuff early to build up your case properly. So it shows your adversary that you are not afraid to spend the money. You are not afraid to retain the proper experts, that you are able to go to trial on this case. And you're not sitting back saying, oh, I have someone who's been badly injured, uh, and just pay me, you know, uh, and, and you know, holding a good thought. They may not take you seriously. They may say, oh, I don't know who you are. You don't have a big firm name or a big reputation. Yeah, it may be a serious case. It may be a flat liability, a rear end case. Your client may have had spinal surgery but we don't think you're gonna spend the money to build this case up for what it's worth. And they may not make you a big offer. So I always ask people who I speak with uh, that wanna run cases by me, like, yeah, they're not taking me seriously. They haven't offered money. And I say, well, have you exchanged an economic report? Have you exchanged a life care plan yet? No, I haven't done that. You think I should? And I say, yeah. And this is why I suggest that that be done. So really important for damages. Uh, these are the types and there's, you know, there's other experts that you can consider um, depending on the type of injury. If your person specialized in a certain type of profession, maybe uh, a musician, a performer who suffered a physical injury, and they're saying, well, they can still perform. They play the piano, but it's a, it's a leg injury. Um, you may want to bring in an expert in the field of uh, a concert pianist or an agent or whoever it is that can talk about how this actually does affect their ability to get jobs and to earn an income. Um, so you wanna find out if there is a unique profession uh, and maybe it's not an hourly wage or a salary type profession, uh, but you still need to figure out how to dial that in to income loss. There's always ways to establish it. Sometimes you need forensic accountants. 
Um, so every case lends itself to potentially an expert uh, to help you in the liability phase, to help you in the damages phase. And it is your job as the attorney handling a catastrophic case to decide what experts you need, when to hire them, and which experts to hire. And it's not always an easy uh, decision to make. I more often than not have the conversation with my partners, the lawyers in my firm will sit around. Um, we just did this in a case we have right now where we said, all right, you know, this case warrants it. It's a big injury case. Um, what kind of liability expert? Do you think we need one? You think we should get one? If we do, who should we look for? Um, let's take a look. Let's see if we can get one. What about damages? How can we build this up? Was the person working? Were they full-time? What kind of job? Do we think we have a good shot at arguing the, the potential damages, uh, loss of income as damages in this case? So these are good conversations to workshop uh, with other lawyers in your firm. If you don't have anyone to workshop with, I always say reach out to me. Um, by the way, for those who don't know and haven't taken me up on my offer, I do one-on-one -on -one meetings, no cost for a half hour Zoom meetings um, all the time. I'll put it in the link in the chat right now. Uh, just click on that link, it pops into my calendar, schedule a 30 minute session with me. We can talk about experts. We could talk about values of cases. We could talk about anything you want to. We could talk about driving cars, which I like to talk about. Um, talk about my uh, new mentorship program uh, that I'm starting, if that's of interest to any of you. So always bounce these things off of others. Um, it's really important to do that. And then when you're trying to decide which expert to hire, sometimes you find the right one right off the bat. But sometimes just because, you know, it's the person says they're an expert and that they can handle the case with for you, you may want to explore a couple of options. You should always get a complimentary phone call or exchange or reference maybe from another lawyer before uh, engaging an expert. You can shop fees and see sometimes they're exorbitantly expensive. Sometimes you need to uh, pay that, um, pay those exorbitant fees if that expert is adequately unique and credentialed. You know, if you want to get the top person in the world on a specific subject, you're going to have to pay for that. Uh, but it may be worth it, but it may not be worth it. You may say, we don't need the top person in the world, but we'd like to get maybe someone affiliated with such and such company or, or institute. Um, so these are conversations that are really important, that are really uh, worth having. So um, that pretty much covers what I wanted to talk about as far as experts. What we're going to talk about in the next series, the next session, uh, the next part of this series, part four, is the deposition phase. Uh, that's going to be on May 4th. We're going to talk about that. And it's the deposition phase of experts. So it's preparing your experts to be questioned. It's preparing yourself how to question uh, an expert in a case. In New York State, uh, in the state courts, we generally do not have the right to question our adversaries' experts prior to trial. Uh, in federal court, you absolutely have a right. You have to disclose a report from your expert in federal court. And then you get to question your adversary's experts and they get to question yours. And it is a lot of work uh, to prepare and properly conduct an expert deposition. And I'm gonna teach you how to do that uh, next month. It's one of my favorite things to do. 
uh, a little spoiler alert, it's going to involve a lot, a lot, a lot of reading. One of the things you always want to do is gather as much information on the subject matter, on what your expert or your adversary's expert has written or published or testified to. And you want to read it all, you want to learn it all, you want to get really organized to prepare for that. But it's a lot of fun. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about that with you uh, next month. So what I'm going to do now is start the Q&A. Uh, we got a minute to go. I encourage you to stay for it because that's when uh, a lot of the good stuff happens in these CLEs. Like I always say, if you get one tidbit that's going to help you uh, in handling your cases moving forward from this session, then it's worthwhile. That's my attitude when I attend CLEs and I attend them just like you do. All right, so Q&A now. Well, I'm going to go through the actual Q&As that uh, have been posted and I'll take them one at a time. And please feel free to post as many as you like. I will try and get through all of them. Again, if I don't, or if you don't wanna do it through this forum, feel free to reach out to me, sign up for one-on-one, one-on-one, I'd love to meet you. I've met uh, almost a hundred lawyers already in one-on-ones and everyone's different and really fascinating to meet with and, and get to know and work with. So here we go. Uh, David Kaufman is asking, um, what if you hire an expert exchange the expert report and then you find out that there's some issue and you want to change the report so be really careful uh if you're going to exchange a report in new york state practice you are not required to exchange a report you're just required to comply with cplr 3101 d1 where you have to give the credentials of your expert and you have to overview in that document what you anticipate your expert's going to testify to you don't actually have to give the report that's a strategic decision sometimes you want to give the report sometimes you don't so if you're going to give it first of all make sure you're happy with it there's nothing concerning you before exchanging it if you find out there's something that needs to be changed you can always amend it and serve what you call a supplemental report and you have your expert either redo the whole report or just say i'd like to supplement this report or amend it uh, and then serve it but if there is a change or something's come up from the time you've disclosed your expert uh, and what that expert is going to testify to, and if you've disclosed a report, um, you must, you're required to supplement that prior to the expert testifying at trial, or they're going to be precluded from offering any additional opinions that were not previously and timely disclosed, either through a 3101 D1 exchange or a report prior to trial. All right, um, Patricia. Recognizing that every case is different, what is the cost range for damages experts whose reports you have shared uh, to have a doctor evaluate a plaintiff, a life care plan, an economist? So sure, every case is different and they range tremendously. Um, let's take one at a time. To have a physician evaluate your client, it's gonna depend on whether that physician is a surgeon, whether they have good credentials, uh, for example, a neurosurgeon from Hospital for Special Surgery would be likely to charge you a lot more than someone that doesn't, uh, that's an internist uh, in a small town family practice, right? There may be hourly rates, they may work on retainer amounts. So the, the, the more credential, the more you can expect to pay. Uh, the more extensive the medical records are, the more you can expect to pay. But I would think in general, you're probably looking at on the low end of about $1,000 and on the high end, it can be 
five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars, depending on um, the expert and their valuation. I mean, I've spent uh, $25,000 on a top plastic surgeon who evaluated a horrifically burned um, client of mine. And it was a, a robust report. He was extremely credentialed and it was worth it for that type of case. Uh, but you don't always have to spend that. Again, each case you have to evaluate. Um, for a life care plan, uh, definitely uh, you're going to want to ask Connor if you stay on afterwards, which I recommend you do. There's, you should always ask people what their fees are, what their rates are. Um, but life care plans, again, they could be a couple thousand dollars, five thousand, six, seven, eight. I mean, the, the ranges are all over depending on the extent of the life care plan, what's involved and in, in what you're getting for it. Different companies are going to offer you different things. So uh, you definitely want to weigh that out. Same thing with a vocational, same price point, same thing with an economist. Most economic reports, I'm paying anywhere between $2,500 to um, $6,000, depending on the analysis they're doing. So it's not rare that for a workup like the one that I just showed you on the case where I did the um, IME, uh, the life care plan, and the economist report, that probably all in on that case cost me about $18,000, uh, give or take, for those three experts in their reports. So it's not inexpensive, but if you're talking about a potential seven-figure case and you're trying to move the dial from settling a case from $300,000 to a million dollars, then it's obviously money that's well spent to invest in. And if you don't have the money to do it, um, your client shouldn't suffer from that. So if you can invest in doing it, I suggest two things. One, get a line of credit. Uh, find a good bank you can work with that will give you a good line of credit. That's what the line of credit is supposed to be used for, funding your case, funding your practice. Or team up with a firm that does have the funds to do it. I have many lawyers, and I enjoy working with them that way, who will refer a case to me and saying, I think this case needs the workup. Um, can you take it over? Uh, can we work out a fee arrangement or referral arrangement? And I do that, and I've done that very successfully, where I end up investing in the case, bringing the demands up, uh, and ultimately getting a higher settlement value that after determining a fee share with the referring attorney who had the case, they end up doing better than they would have done if they kept the case and didn't invest in it. So that's something to consider. Okay. Um, Carol is asking, if a case is already uh, in alternative dispute resolution, so I assume it's a uh, in mediation or perhaps it's in an arbitration. Is it too late to get the experts and reports uh, with a defendant offering very low? So the one good thing about uh, ADR, alternative dispute resolution, is depending on what form you're in. By that I mean, is it with the AAA, that's like a required agreement to arbitrate through SUM or no fault or a contract? then your arbitrator may have set rules on end dates for discovery disclosure so you would need to comply with those if it's me and a friend of mine at a defense firm adversary we agree uh let's go into a binding high-low arbitration uh with you know someone uh from one of the organizations that's a sponsor of the academy um then we can just there's no deadlines usually in that uh, and if there aren't, then you just you work it out. You ask the arbitrator, you ask them, or you just serve it. Certainly, if you're just a mediation only, you serve it at any time. So if the case hasn't settled, 
and there's no deadlines, get it going, work it up right now. That's my recommendation. Um, here's a question I always anticipate and I addressed earlier from Richard. Um, what stage of the litigation should you hire the various experts? Again, it's gonna depend on the case. Um, if it's a catastrophic case, um, you're gonna wanna get them involved pretty early on, um, pretty early on. And by that, I mean, certainly while you're still doing depositions, maybe uh, either right before or around the time of the plaintiff's deposition, but you wanna size up the damages early on, know, know what you can prove, uh, especially when that time comes uh, in a big case where your adversary asks for a demand. You're gonna to wanna to be able to back it up. Now, if it's a case that's a catastrophic injury and you know it's worth $500,000 or more and it's only $100,000 policy, you're probably okay to wait, all right? Uh, you may wait and probably get the policy at some point. So again, but if it's a big policy uh, and you wanna get as much of it as you can, you're gonna to wanna to get those experts involved early. And again, if you're in federal court, there's gonna be a schedule when you have to comply with and make your disclosures. Uh, and if uh, you're in state court, technically you don't have to disclose your experts uh, until you're, you're the, after the note of issue is filed, you're on the trial calendar, discovery is complete, and you can file that as it gets pretty close to trial. Usually, as long as you're within a month of trial, generally you're probably okay. So you may wanna wait and see how things play out. Again, these are all decisions you have to to weigh in your capacity as an attorney uh, handling the case. Okay, um, how do you handle a situation where the client had a prior accident? What records do you send the expert? And uh, what if they had a subsequent accident? It's a great question. And it's not uncommon that you're handling a case, but there is a prior or subsequent accident. Give all of the records to your evaluating expert. Otherwise, Picture what happens when your expert gets up on the stand and your adversary is saying, oh, and you say this is all causally related to this accident and the back injury is related and this and that. And you say it's all causally related to this accident. Well, uh, when you reviewed the records, did you see the records from five years before when they tripped and fell and went for treatment for a year for the same exact back injuries? And then if that expert says, uh, I don't think I saw those. And then the adversary says, well, I'm looking through the records you listed, you reviewed, and they're not there. Um, that might make a difference in your opinions in this case, wouldn't it, right? And then your case just goes down the drain. So yes, address it, okay? And these are one of the things that my defense friends uh, attending today, I encourage you to, it's, to get experts that are okay with conceding things and acknowledging things. It's so much better. Their credibility is so much better if they concede and acknowledge things. And I'll give you, a, just as a quick aside, you know, when you have these big cases and you start putting up these numbers of loss of income, uh, you know, nine times out of 10, I think almost 10 out of 10, when I get an expert report from the defense in rebuttal, they don't say, yeah, uh, his, his income is limited now, uh, but, uh, you know, it's only limited a little bit. Uh, he was making 100,000, he could probably make uh, 80,000 or 70,000 now. So yeah, there's a 20% loss. They don't say that. What they say is they can go back to work. That's my opinion. I don't see any reason why they can't go back to work and earn what they were working. And they just don't concede. And it just, so instead of being able to argue to a jury, yeah, they were impaired, but it's not as much as Mr. Smiley's saying. We have a credible expert who's explaining that it's actually it's only impaired 20%, it's not impaired 90%.
Uh, instead, you put forth on the defense side these experts that just don't budge, and then it, it, it just it's not credible. So that's why you want to put all the prior stuff. You want to put all the subsequent stuff. Don't hide from problems in your case, especially with your expert. Tackle them head on. Tell your expert about the prior accident. Say, how can you distinguish it? Can you distinguish it? If you can't, would you agree that this aggravated that? Are you able to explain why it would have aggravated that? Put that in your report, all right? It's really important to do that. Credibility is key in cases and it's key in front of juries. So don't mess around. You have to see the forest for the trees on both sides as a plaintiff and a defense. If you're just getting an expert to say what you wanna say because you think it's gonna scare the other side and help your case, but you're not playing it out as to what if the case doesn't settle and it goes to trial, how is this all gonna shake out in front of a jury? Then you're really, you're, you're missing the mark and you're not, you're not doing a good job. Uh, all right, Alan is, uh, let's see, Alan is asking, uh, about evaluating damages in a non-catastrophic car accident case. Well, again, this is going to come down to um, upside gain. And if the case is only worth uh, best case scenario, the insurance policy, or you don't see it as being a, a big injury, um, then you don't want to go spending all this money because it's ultimately going to come out of your client's share. So if you see a case, if it's an insurance policy of $100,000 and you think the injuries are worth it, uh, and uh, you figure out that after doing the depositions, doing your investigation, you've already spent, let's say, $5,000 in expenses and your fees a third. That's $38,000 right off the hundred. Your client's going to clear, uh, what, sixty-two? dollars if I'm doing my numbers right. Um, do you really want to spend another $25,000 on experts to work up the damages case uh, to get that $100,000 and knock the recovery down now? from 62 to, you know, down into the 30s or 40s. So you have to evaluate that. Um, but what you can do short of going full boat with all the experts is asking the treating doctor for a narrative, asking the treating doctor to causally connect everything. Uh, and I always recommend doing that if you're trying to uh, build the case more. All right. Um, there are some vocational experts and economists who work on a lean basis. Uh, hey, Jonathan, thanks for that question. What do I think about that? Um, I'm okay with that, but I think that could be a problem at trial because ultimately you want your expert to say, I call balls and strikes. I'm not tied into the result of this case, whether or not, uh, so I'm not vested in this case that the client wins and if you're, uh, that the plaintiff wins. I got paid, I get paid, these are my fees, whether I'm working for a plaintiff, whether I'm working for a defendant, this is my schedule, I get paid the same amount, and I, it's not me to determine who wins, who loses, that's for a jury to decide, I just give my opinion, and, uh, and it's based on my review of the materials and my expertise. Now, if that same expert is taking a lien on the file, then a savvy adversary is gonna say, well, if the plaintiff doesn't win this case, you're not going to get paid, right? You took a lien on this, and that's all fair game. And a jury may be like, "What? What? They're they're vested in this?" So I would stay away from that. Uh, it, it's nice. It helps cash flow. Cash flow is a problem for all of us as plaintiffs' lawyers. Um, but you know, you have to in a situation like that, you're better off finding a way to fund it. But I wouldn't do a lien on something like that. 
Um, all right, Ken, I talked about the range of costs as best as I know, but again, uh, sit in tight with um, Connor uh, and Dr. Stein. They'll hopefully help you uh, answer some of those cost questions. Now, uh, David's saying he heard there's some new dirt on his expert. It came out since he ex disclosed him. He's yet to see it. Uh, if it's bad, he's considering hiring a new expert, a missing witness charge. So a couple things. You always want to ask your expert at the time of retention or certainly before deposition, if it's in federal court or in a venue that allows it, what dirt is there on you? Has there been anything that's popped up at trial or in a deposition that they think they've got on you? Anything I need to know uh, as your lawyer, I want you to be prepared and, and I, don't want, I don't like surprises. So you always ask that question. And if there were no surprises, but something comes out afterwards, you call up the expert and you, you confront the expert. What happened here? What happened there? I heard something bad happen at trial or you know you, you were made to look bad or something came out. Um, now, if you've already disclosed that expert, you don't need to call the expert at trial. Yeah, if you still have time, you can get a new expert, use a new expert. And I don't believe a missing witness charge is appropriate um, for an expert that's retained solely for the litigation as an expert. Uh, a true missing witness charge says that uh, the jury gets charged that um, one of the parties to a case has failed to call a certain witness who has knowledge uh, of the facts and circumstances of this case and their failure to call this witness, you may infer that that witness's testimony may not have been helpful to them and that's why they've chosen not to call this witness. So I don't think you have any obligation to produce an expert, especially if you substituted it. Um, and if you do get a missing witness charge, you just say to the jury, yeah, you know, our expert wasn't available. Uh, and so we got a backup and we're glad we did have someone who could come here and testify for you. That's how I would handle it, David. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD462. Again, that's POD462. All right, Greg is asking, um, would a vocational expert include the cost of schooling if your client can no longer practice the occupation for which they were trained? And could that be included when evaluating damages? Absolutely. If your expert says, listen, this person can get a job, but they're going to need training. They're going to need schooling. That's going to cost money. Here's what it costs. Definitely, definitely. Everything related to that. Um, they need to take a course on being certified for something. If they want to be an Uber driver, but they've got to train to be uh, get a certain type of commercial driver's license, whatever it is. Yes, it's all thrown in there. Okay. Um, Joseph is asking, do I find that big buck experts need to know what the other experts are on the case? Do egos clash or biases come up when experts rely on other expert reports in developing your case? That's a great question, Joseph. Uh, and really the issue is, how does it work when you have multiple experts? Uh, I try and address that with my experts. Uh, first of all, I always ask, are you all right testifying at trial? Are you all right testifying at a deposition? Uh, I'm going to give you a life care plan from such and such expert to evaluate. Are you okay with that? Uh, have you ever worked with this expert before? Um, I'm having my client evaluated by such and such expert. Uh, is it all right if I give you that expert's information for a life care plan? So I generally like to feel that out in advance. And I find that usually experts are happy to work with each other 
Many have come across each other in the past, and it's usually not a problem. Um, if it's medical experts uh, in similar fields, let's say you have a neurologist and a neurosurgeon, and they're each sort of giving you some different thoughts, um, then you might want to talk with them and say, listen, this our expert here is saying this, what do you think about that? And then what you can often do is sort of separate out and make sure that you have clearly defined lines between what you're disclosing each expert for. For example, in our um, the animation case that I showed with the red dump truck hitting the, the Jeep, we have a trucking expert that talks about the standard of care for commercial truck drivers, and we have our accident reconstruction expert. And our trucking expert, when he reviewed the case, came up with a lot of opinions that went into the territory of our accident reconstructionist. And we said, listen, we don't need you to go into those opinions. We just want you to focus on this area. We've got someone that's covering that area. And that's the best way to handle it. You sort of limit each to their box of what you want them for, okay? Um, Robert, how's it going? I see that you are asking that if I give my medical valuation report to the insurance adjuster for settlement discussions, is this a problem if you don't settle? And now you end up litigating it and you now have given the other side more information on your expert than required. Well, Robert, I think in any case, anything you give over, you have to anticipate they're going to use and should use at the time of trial. So unless you feel comfortable giving it to them, and unless you're planning on calling an expert at the time of trial, then don't give them the expert. Again, this is a long game. Don't look at it as the short game of, oh, maybe if I get an expert to write a report saying this, they'll come up with enough to settle it. That's the wrong way to think about it. The right way is, is maybe they'll come up with enough to settle it. And if not, at least we have this expert locked in to testify a trial in accordance with the report. And that'll help us get there. So you have to assume uh, it's going to be used and be okay with that. Okay, uh, Patricia's asking, uh, would it be typically be better to use plaintiff's treating physician surgeon to counter defense arguments than a plaintiff IME as a hired gun? So yes, if you have a cooperating treating surgeon who will be your expert, um, that's always the best case scenario. And I like that. I've had some phenomenal treating surgeons who I'd never known before. I had a case where a client had a really bad ankle injury, um, really bad. And uh, we had to go to trial and I met with their doctor. He agreed that he would testify at trial uh, and we met and prepared him and he was amazing on the witness stand. He was fantastic. So sure, if you can do that, but not all treating doctors are willing to cooperate. Uh, not all treating doctors are good witnesses. They're good doctors, but they're not good witnesses. Not all of them are willing to work with you. So if you have one doctor that's been sort of the quarterback for your client's care, done the surgery, followed up, good rapport, uh, and that doctor is willing to be the expert, then yeah, go for it. I would reach out to the doctor, say, would you be an expert? Um, you know, and go from there. Okay. Um, all right, Michael is asking, how do I deal with a defense expert on the stand or by motion when he amends his report materially, especially inserting range of motion findings, record reviews, and all of that? Well, if they amend the report within the appropriate time frame in your case that they're allowed to, then they've amended it. If you have the right to question them at a deposition, uh, then you grill them on why all of a sudden now are they putting this in? Um, why wasn't in their first report? Again, at trial, you're going to make, you're going to highlight the fact that the experts changed things or amended the report. 
in an emotion, you, you know, you do your best to highlight also that maybe there was a prior report, but it was changed. The reality is there may not be much you can do with it. If they took all those measurements and they just didn't put them in the report and then their lawyer calls them up and says, hey, we need these measurements. We're doing a summary judgment motion. Can you supplement your report? They get it, they exchange it. That's frankly the proper way to do it if you're a defense and you just, there's not much to, not much to do in that regard. You just have your own opposing expert submit what they submit, okay? Uh, uh, the expert is saying, uh, Jonathan was talking about the lien, that if they're getting paid on a lien by a third party and it's not contingent on the outcome. Um, so I think a lien is always contingent on the outcome. Uh, I know that there's some funding services that you don't have to pay them if you don't win, but if you do win, you have to pay them. So there is an incentive to win. As long as you can remove that incentive element, um, and if you have a funding company that's paying for them and says, we'll pay for them, but um, if you lose, then it's fair game because then the expert's saying, no, I got paid. I'm not working on a lien. I got paid. It's really the funding company that's working on a lien. I think that's okay. That's no problem. As long as your expert can say that they're getting paid regardless and has nothing to do with the outcome of the case, um, then I think it's good to go. Steve is asking, how do you rehabilitate an economist that gets beat up on cross because they advertise that they can increase a plaintiff's recovery significantly? So I think what you would do is that's all in the preparation uh, of your witness for testifying. You want to make sure the witness is prepared for that, saying, don't you advertise that you can increase the plaintiff's recovery significantly and then have your witness say, yeah, I do because I know what I'm doing. And a proper economist should be able to do that because most people don't uh, hire someone like me. And here's how I'm able to do that and why I do that. Because I look at the a life care plan. I look at the wage growth. I look at that. And many uh, expert people don't hire experts who do that. So yeah, I can increase it. And I'm not, and I'm doing it all within the accepted practices. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think every expert should do that. And same way I work for defense. That's why you want a credible expert who does work for the defense. I also advertise and I explain to my defense clients that I can reduce the recovery because I look at certain things that other experts don't. So it goes both ways. I think it's just a matter of preparing them properly. Okay, um, Matthew is asking as to the lien issue. What if the health provider is in no fault litigation or arbitration regarding the claim? In such a case, could he really testify that the fee is in a separate litigation with the insurance company? Um, yeah, I think that it's different. They're talking about their fee for treatment, uh, not for their fee as being an expert in a case. So certainly they're entitled to get paid for treatment. And if they're, they're saying, listen, no fault's not paying me, so I've agreed either I'm going to lose it or if the plaintiff ultimately can afford to pay me fine. Um, but that that's separate from giving expert opinions. So you, you just want to parse that out as best as you can. All right. It looks like there's one more question I'm seeing unless anything additional gets added and we're right at a close to the mark. It's 225. Um, do I recommend waiting until after Mar uh, Maddie's asking this? Thank you, Maddie. Do I recommend waiting until after all defense physical exams are held before retaining a life care planner. Uh, I don't, I don't recommend that uh, because generally the plaintiff puts uh, their foot forward and shows what you have and it's up to the defense to rebut it. And then 
I think it's fine to do that uh, if you're ready to do it, because you want, let the defense IMEs examine them and not look at it. And that's even more fodder you have for cross-examination or expert testimony to say you evaluated everything. How come you didn't evaluate the life care plan? You didn't critique it at all. Are you saying that they don't need this? Uh, and then you could sort of attack them that way. Uh, instead of waiting until afterwards and they'd say I didn't have the opportunity because you didn't do the you didn't produce and provide a life care plan until afterwards. All right, hey, I got a uh, question here. All right, um, this is gonna be the last question. Can you give hard numbers uh, on how much you must invest per million dollar in damages that you expect to recover? Not sure about that. How many lawyers and assistants in your office you need? Can you develop a mathematical equation to calculate the investment that you can make, estimated recovery and cost of investigation and cost of staff? Um, no, I can't give you any of those numbers. There's no magic formula, uh, Richard, on that. I mean, you have to decide as a lawyer, and that's why what we do is a skill and an art. It's not an exact science. You have to decide, and along with your client, um, how much you're going to invest in their case, what you're going to invest on, just like we all as attorneys and running practices have to decide how many cases we want to take, how many people we want to employ, how much we spend on our cases, that type of thing. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD258. Again, that's POD258. Two, five, eight. Thank you all for joining me uh, as always. And uh, if you haven't already, check out the podcast, listen to Michelle and uh, share it with your friends and colleagues.